eerie sounds from inside the haunted house at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. Nothing scary about it for Jennifer Pace Robinson. She put her imagination to work on creating things like this as a little girl growing up in Indianapolis. My parents allowed me to be very creative and kind of take over the basement and make these crazy themed haunted house museums that I would then charge people to come into. And so my dad jokes that he's like, you're just doing the same thing you did in the basement. Now, you know, you turned it into a job somehow. That job? president and CEO of the world's largest children's museum. What does extraordinary look like? Come take a peek at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. Jennifer Pace Robinson, a born and raised Hoosier, now in charge of running one of Indiana's biggest tourist attractions. She's my guest this week on the Business and Beyond podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. I'm Gary Dick. Jennifer Pace Robinson grew up on the northwest side of Indianapolis. Her parents owned land near Eagle Creek. Riding horses, taking a dip at the nearest swimming hole, all part of her childhood. After graduating Pike High School, Jennifer went on to DePaul University, where she earned a bachelor's in communications, got her master's degree at IU, and then studied archaeology in Greece. Jennifer has put her passion for exploring and storytelling to work at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis for 30 years, leaving an everlasting mark on some of the biggest attractions at the museum. On a recent expedition at the New Dinosphere at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. Did you hear a twig snap? <sighs> Something big is coming. Jennifer Pace Robinson was the project manager when Dinosphere opened in 2004. Now, she's president and CEO. And I'm pleased to have Jennifer Pace Robinson, the CEO of the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, join me now on the podcast. Jennifer, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Very good. Very good. Uh, I know things are always busy at the Children's Museum as we are taping this you're just coming off uh, uh, a very popular event, the Haunted House, right? We are. It was a wonderful uh, Halloween season. Felt like normal. We were busy. We had lines to get into the Haunted House, and we were able to move forward with all of our associated special events. So it was great to see all of our families come out in costume and be excited for the holiday. Yeah, you say it kind of back to normal. So obviously, we've been through the pandemic, and that had a dramatic effect on on all kinds of things. Overall, not just haunted house, but attendance and activity and things, you feel as though things are getting back to normal? Yes, we're certainly feeling that kind of that pent up demand that people I think are still, you know, wanting to get out and feeling, uh, feeling some of that freedom. Our attendance has been very strong um, through this quarter. Uh, School groups are back in full force. um, And that has been really wonderful to see that children are able to get out of out of the classroom and get on a bus and take a field trip. So some so much of that um, feels normal and it feels um, feels busy. So we are cautiously optimistic 
you took over as CEO of the Children's Museum, uh, had been there for many, many years, but took over as CEO, I believe it May of 2020, correct? Uh, just a year ago. Oh, yeah. maybe 2021, I'm 21. sorry. Yes. So obviously, this was during um, during the pandemic. What was it like, uh, you know, managing through that whole process? So now that I look back on it, it was it was a little surreal. And I think that when you're in moments like that, you just kind of do what you have to do to put one foot in front of each other um, and keep moving forward. And I have to say that the team here at the museum is just stellar. And so everybody just threw themselves into what the changes needed to be, scaling back on what we were offering, figuring out ways to keep visitors safe. I can't even go into the, the regimented cleaning protocol that was developed. Um, and so what's neat to see now is the things that we're not talking about, you know, that we are able to focus on the business of running a museum and there's less conversation about uh, connecting with our medical advisory panel and uh, social distancing. And so just realizing how much space it took up to really manage during the pandemic that um, I'm looking forward to getting back to our creativity and innovation that we're known for. You, you know, you mentioned running the business and the, the Children's Museum nonprofits are without question businesses. You're a big business there. Talk about the size and scope. It's always been billed as the, the world's largest children's museum. Talk about the size and scope of the museum, and and, uh, and it truly is an international uh, business as well. It is. So um, we're 500,000 square feet uh, that we're operating on our facility, and then we've got a 7.5-acre campus with our outdoor sports experience, um, and we run all the typical um, operations that you would expect a themed experience to do. So you've got program development, implementation, we're building new experiences. We've got to have a five-year plan looking down the road. We are engaging in strategic partnerships, both near and far. Uh, we are very active in our six surrounding neighborhoods with our Mid-North Promise program. Um, and balancing all of that with our endowment draw, we are blessed to have um, a wonderful endowment. Uh, but we still count on um, contributed and earned revenue and also our ticket sales. So really, it's balancing the mission with what will bring in earned revenue and then taking care of the people in the process. So I think I think we've all seen during the pandemic the uh, the strain it has put on on staff and how that has impacted also hiring. And so we believe that it's also important to care for the people in the process. Um, and that's really, um, really come to light during the pandemic. And the Children's Museum is a question of regional attraction and certainly uh, one of the, the very key assets that Indianapolis has is it, uh, you know, attempts to, uh, you know, attract uh, conventions and, and visitors and actually people to live here, live, work and play here. Talk about the, the reach, the draw, the attraction that the Children's Museum has become. So we really are a regional tourist destination, perhaps a national tourist destination. And so that's why we have to be careful to make sure that we have those tried and true and steady things that members, local memberships wanna come back and come to our playscape and our dinosphere. But then we constantly have to have that innovative mix bringing in new exhibits like the Scooby-Doo exhibit that we produced with Warner Brothers and our relationship with Mattel. And, those other IP and brand properties, those are really um, 
those can help make a splash to get people interested in the museum, but they're here temporarily. And then we want you to fall in love with the heart of the museum, the carousel, the, the Reuben Wells steam locomotion, locomotive, the uh, dinosphere, the sports park. Those are kind of the evergreen theme, themes that keep people coming back again. In addition to our collection, and we're, we're unique because we are one of the few collecting museums and we've got over 130,000 objects. Um, wow. And it's been really special and also important to put those objects out so that we can foster these family conversations. So you've got the parent that loved the toy that now the toy is having a resurgence. And then we wanna make an, a connection with a brand partner that owns that brand. And so that really makes the space magical. I, I think before you took over as CEO, you had been at the Children's Museum for something like 29 years. Uh, so yeah. a long time, you've seen a lot there. And, and I, I find it interesting, uh, you talk about the business of the Children's Museum, you talk about you know, Mattel and Warner Brothers and intellectual property and, and all the things that go into uh, the day-to-day -day business of the museum. Is, is that part of how that business has changed since you started in it, you know, 30 years ago, just the, you know, the connection to, to, to the corporate world and so many other elements? Yes, we have definitely grown in that regards, but again, it's because we have such a strong foundation. Being able to make those partnerships, you know, honestly, it's hard to go out and say, we're a children's museum from the Midwest and explaining um, who we are, but having a collection, being accredited by the American Alliance of Museums, having the track record for caring for important relationships allows us to attract other partnerships. So working, for example, with Malala Yousafzai to tell her story in our Power of Children exhibit, you know, she had already had some awareness of who we are and our ability to tell stories. And that also attracts interest from um, governments around the world who are not only going to let us borrow objects and help tell their stories, but also who are interested in our services to help them create museums in their part of the world. As you look back, again, 29 or so years, you were, the as I did a little research, you were the original project manager on Dinosphere, right? On the yes. Dinosphere yes. project, yes. which is such a, an iconic piece and part of the uh, the Children's Museum. And I know as you took over as CEO, that's that's one of the ongoing projects, I think, to kind of update or enhance that, that whole project. Talk about that, uh, that process. You know, I, I'm kind of happy that I didn't know what I didn't know at that point, because, um, you know, it's one thing to be a project manager and build an exhibition in a square space that has track lighting and HVAC and everything planned. And it's another thing entirely to look at expanding and, and doing something innovative. So again, I'm going to, I'm going to roll back on the team because uh, I was able to lead a team that was super innovative. And the idea being that we can take the best of what museums do, but also learn from the theme park industry and Disney. And instead of putting dinosaurs just in dioramas, we can create a world. And that domed theater that we repurposed allowed us to put a light ring in. We have a sound and light show that goes from day to night. And what we found is the dwell time is so high in that space. So not only are people coming to see the dinosaurs, but they just wanna hang out in this really cool world. And so, you know, I'm, it's kind of amazing that it all, you know, we went away for three days and we did kind of a, a covert uh, brainstorm about imagining how we could do dinosaurs in a different way. But I'll also say that this is a time when the American Museum of Natural History and the Field Museum were also having these conversations 
And so I was able to network and learn what other people were doing. So coming back around, um, I love the, the notion of reinvesting in something that's important, that you can't kind of rest on your laurels, that we were able to go back 10 years later and talk about how we could make Dynasphere even better. Uh, I will say one of my favorite things that I experienced being in this new job was working the top of the ramp during our busy spring break when we just opened and the children who are lined up to go down into the Jurassic world who turn the corner and gasp because they're seeing these giant dinosaurs, but they're also <laughs> seeing the lighting and the trees and the plants. And so I really feel like we've hit our stride on understanding that balance between education, but also creating wonderment and excitement through the experiences that we make. What the dramatic exhibits like that, uh, I'm sure, are, are a really important piece of what makes a great museum. What else, in your view, makes a great museum? How, how much of it is kind of the, the storytelling, if you will, a piece of that uh, to making a great museum? I, I do think the, the focus on a narrative in that really uh, in the museum world, I, I see a shift from it being about you know, showing you all the things that a museum has in a collection or pouring out all the content that we feel we need to share with the public. And it's very much more driven by what visitors are interested in um, and that pre-visit surveying and really having conversations about what will attract an audience and what will sustain engagement. And I think that people, you know, we're competing with movies and theme parks. And so if we can do a little bit of that entertainment as well, I think that's really going to keep us um, viable and keep us on the map. Because like I mentioned, people want to come just to be part of this crazy, beautiful organization. The other part that is really important is, is the staff. And, I, and we've always had a, a dedicated uh, crew to work in those spaces to interpret the galleries and also maintain them. Because you know, when things break, it, it's so hard to take care of such a large organization um, with all the mechanical pieces we have, but really we've got a great team who is in charge of making sure that innovation keeps happening, making sure that things don't look tired so that when you come back, we hope everything is sparkling and is as great as you saw in the first of it. The sports legends experience, the out, an outdoor uh, experience. And as I looked at it from afar, it seemed to be a really a, you know, kind of a different move and a different space for the Children's Museum to go go into. Talk about the thought process in, in putting that together, partnering with sports organizations and entities in the Indianapolis area uh, with that. What was the kind of the genesis for that project? So we started talking about having an outdoor experience years ago, you know, because we would lament the fact that it's a beautiful day and people want to be outside. I love how the space is kind of elevated, that it could have been just an outdoor park, but the way that we partnered and that the organizations were willing, you know, the Colts and the Pacers and the Fuel, working with the IMS, they were all willing to not only put their brand on it, but also to help us build the content. And so when you walk out there, I don't know where you feel like you are, but you've got music coming in. We are doing activations with Colts players. We've had the, that dunk team from the Pacers out there. There is quite a buzz out there, and, and that's not just because of us. That's because the Indianapolis community got on board and really agreed with our vision, which was you kind of stop engaging as a family with sports when your child gets into formal, you know, organized sports. I think the you know, last time I threw a football with my son in the backyard, 
was when he went off to join an organized soccer team. And so we really wanted to embrace that idea of not a competitive situation, really bringing out more of the play, and then mining Indiana's rich history with pretty phenomenal athletes. So we've got all those bronze statues. So you've got, you're anchored in history. I remember talking to Oscar Robertson, who grew up in our neighborhood, and he is one of the bronze legend statues. Mm -hmm. And he told me his whole story about building a basketball hoop out of a peach basket, rolling it out, and letting the neighborhood kids uh, play basketball with it. And so like, what an amazing history right here in our backyard. And that experience has allowed us to, to pull out those really, great, really amazing stories. Before we go to break, uh, you succeeded Jeff Patchen, a guy who really made an indelible mark on the museum over over many years. What what was Jeff, in your view, what was Jeff's uh, impact on the uh, on the museum and and his role in in creating what truly is an asset for Indianapolis? So he was definitely a visionary and generated a lot of amazing ideas like the sports experience. But he was also willing to take risks and you know make cold calls, get on a plane. He gave me a lot of leeway to kind of follow, uh, you know, seeds of ideas. Um, And he was really interested in really shoring up the business side of the institution and making sure that we would be viable for years and years to come. Yeah. I'm putting that's back to my earlier question, but the business of of museums and nonprofits and, and, you know, what's the biggest challenge from a business standpoint, financial standpoint, are the things that keep you up? You talk about competition and who you're competing against Mm -hmm. a variety of, of, um, of options that consumers and families have now. What's, what's the biggest challenge facing museums? I think it is that notion of, of competition, but also that balance between investing in infrastructure and taking risks on creating something new. And you've got to have both. You know, I've been to other museums, been to museums where they've got something new that's spectacular, but they may not have the endowment to operate what is existing. And so that fundraising window is longer when you not only raise money for the capital, but you also build in an endowment dollars. And those endowment dollars are harder to raise, but in the example of Dynasphere, you know, we've got a, over a $200,000 operating budget based on keeping that space the way we want it to run. But that was funded when we built the capital. So uh, so that keeps me up is making sure that we've got solid plans for what we do next, but also that we've got the long term resources to keep it running and keep it staffed and keep it looking, looking good. Very good. Jennifer Pace Robinson is the CEO at the Children's Museum here in Indianapolis. Uh, a lot more with her coming up after the break. Uh, growing up in Indianapolis, how she kind of got her passion for uh, the museum business and got into the business, if you will. That and a lot more when the Business and Beyond podcast continues. This is Alex Brown. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand. This twice-daily podcast features our statewide Inside Indiana Business Radio reports with additional bonus content that you can listen to anytime, anywhere. 
You can listen now on the podcast page at InsideIndianaBusiness.com or subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. My guest this week, Jennifer Pace Robinson, the CEO of the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, the world's largest uh, children's museum, and uh, certainly one of Indianapolis's shining stars when it comes to uh, showing off the city and what we have to offer here. And uh, Jennifer, you um, your passion for the Children's Museum here in India, I guess, comes naturally because you're a native. You were born here, uh, Pike Township. Talk about growing up in, in Indian in Pike Township. What was that like? It was I. It was ideal. I grew up out by Eagle Creek. My parents had uh, some property, and we had horses. And it was, you know, swimming in a swimming hole. You know, hiking on the trails. A lot of pretend play. My parents allowed me to be very creative and kind of take over the basement and make these crazy themed haunted house museums that I would then charge people <laughs> to come into. And so my dad jokes that. He's like, you're just doing the same thing you did in the basement now, you know, you turned <laughs> it into a job somehow. But yeah. um, I loved growing up in Pike. I was I was really involved in sports and uh, active in my schools and really felt like I had a lot of opportunities and a lot of access to different types of people that really started shaping who I wanted to become when I grew up. Well, and that's, I was going to ask you about that, where you got that interest and that passion for what you're doing today. And clearly it, it started at home, right? I mean, it, uh, that, 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 that's where it all began. Yeah. I had parents who were, my mom was an artist and my dad is super creative. And, you know, I can only hope that I've given my own kids you know, a fraction of the amazing childhood that they, they were able to give me. My dad was super, um, invested in whatever I was interested in. And so when I started showing interest in archaeology, you know, he would take me to the Children's Museum and we had our mummy, but it was in a stone sarcophagus and you had to purposely like step up and look into it. And I, it took me a couple of years to get the courage to be like, you know, I'm going to look at her today. And then once I saw her and her, um, the way she was decorated and the symbols and the hieroglyphs, I was hooked. But my dad was the one that then got me a subscription to National Geographic and Smithsonian Magazine. And he really pushed what I was interested in. And so that's another thing I keep in mind as a parent, but also working at the museum is how do you mine understanding what children are interested in, what they care about, and let them know that that really matters and that we can be a partner in how that grows and hopefully shapes into something later in life. What was high school like? Were you a bookworm? Were you, you know, a studious sports uh, arts? Uh, what, what was your, what was your passion in high school? I tried to do. I was a type A. I tried to do everything. You know, <laughs> grades were very, very important to me. Um, but I wanted to be in every club. I was in the Latin club and the Spanish club and, and the honor society. But also ran cross country and I was a cheerleader and I was a dancer <laughs> and I was also in the orchestra and played the bassoon. So um, probably like overextended myself, but I, I do think there is something about being able to try out a lot of, lot of different things um, and kind of see where you land. You know, I still run today and I wouldn't be a runner if I didn't start running cross country. And I, for years I ran on the road and as a 
50 plus year old woman, like your knees start to go out. And I'm like, I, what the, I think I could probably find a trail to yeah. run on and it would feel like cross country again. And so I found trails here in Indianapolis that I can run on. And so I'm still doing that. So high school was great. I was interested in things like the prom and I wanted to do the decorations and the themes. We did an evening on the Nile. Um, I was into, I was into all of, all of it. I just wanted to do it all. You were, you were busy, obviously. Well, how about, the, you went to college at DePaul in uh, Greencastle. Uh, what, uh, did you think about other places or what, what, uh, what attracted you to, uh, to DePaul? Well, honestly, I had had a friend um, who who went to DePauw, and I first fell in love with the campus because I did a cheerleading camp at DePauw, and I didn't even know what I would study, but I'm like, you know, this is a beautiful campus, and then I found out that they had an international study program, and that you could go to Greece and study archaeology, and that that part of that experience was you would get to Egypt. And so I mapped my whole college career around wanting to do this international study abroad program. Um, but once I got to DePauw, um, I was majoring in anthropology and really kind of came to the realization that I'm not super patient and I'm not a real good researcher or like uh, practicing archaeologist. But I was interested in the storytelling that went into what happened after an artifact was discovered. And so I actually took a communication class on kind of a whim and fell in love with that because it was writing with a purpose, writing for different audiences, trying to uh, being persuasive. And that really fit more with where I wanted to go, but I didn't know what that was. Right. The value of a college education is under scrutiny today. And, and 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 I think that's been the case too in, in some quarters when you talk about liberal arts education. And I think you 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 sound like a great example of the benefits of of liberal arts uh, education. How, how do you view that? I, I, speaking of DePaul, I know they've they've uh, just or will be launching a business school. Uh, I know yeah. uh, at, at DePaul as well, but still with that liberal arts you know mantra there. Uh, your thoughts on a liberal arts education? You know, I have to say so much of what we did was project-based and team-based. And the reality of real life is unless you're in a real specified field where you're working by yourself, you're going to have to interact with other people and figure out how to get along and figure out when to lead and when to follow. And DePauw totally prepared me for that. And also, I feel like the liberal arts education sparked the idea that you can be interested in a lot of different things. You know, that I don't have to just be studying one subject for a particular purpose. Now, that's important because you got to think about a career, but it really made me uh, appreciate, you know, letting my mind wander. And I think about reading the newspaper and learning about IU, finding the shipwreck of Captain Kitt. And I made the call and I was like, oh my gosh, could we do something about that? Well, that's the basis of our Treasures of the Earth exhibit. So that liberal arts education where they, they, inspire you to want to like follow a lead, I think it's really important when it comes to being innovative and having new ideas. But the idea of how you're going to negotiate and work with people to get something done is that unspoken thing that we all need to learn how to do. As you look ahead, you've just been in the CEO role, been at the museum for many years, been in the CEO role just over a year uh, or so. What uh, what's your vision for the museum? What's uh, really uh, front burner issues and, and things you want to accomplish here in the next uh, the next few years? 
So we are getting ready to celebrate our 100th birthday in 2025. And so we have come up with a plan that we call our second century vision. And so it's trying to look ahead and look behind first. I did a lot of study on how the museum got started and why and you know, where, where are our roots? And then where are we today? Hey, what, by the, by the way, sorry to jump in there, but I'm, I'm curious, okay. yeah, how, how did the museum start? So, I mean, what, what was the yeah, yeah, it's, spark? It's a neat story. Um, a woman named Mary Stewart Perry had heard of the notion of a children's museum. And the idea being that instead of having signs that say, don't touch, that there are signs that say, please touch. And so she got together with a group of community leaders who also started the orchard school. So we're very similar in the educational philosophy about hands-on learning, about asking questions, about letting kids be curious. And we it started with one of the first objects that they acquired was a pufferfish. And so we actually have a photo of two young boys in 1925 who were actually touching the pufferfish because Mrs. Stewart Carey said, please touch. Wow. Uh, and so... Now, we don't let people touch objects all the time unless we deaccession them from the collection or their fossilized bone that you can't hurt. But it really paved the way for the idea of interactives and manipulatives that help you experience part of a scientific process or engage in an area of content so that you can kind of role play essentially what's going on. Um, and that bloomed into what we now call family learning. And so... The other thing is I look at um, one of our prior CEOs, Mrs. Compton. She was the one that was responsible for moving us into the location where we are now. And like her vision to just do something as simple as a ramp. Now, most museums have a ramp. But remember, this is a time where you've got the old, you know, the field museums and the Museum of Science and Industry where you've got steep, steep steps. But like if you have a ramp, you've got wheelchair access, you've got stroller access. You're also able to see all the galleries and she had these visions for these super high ceilings and these big spaces and I can't tell you how many times we've done a revision and I said thank you Mrs. Compton for having so much vision. So as we go into our second century it's really about revising and revitalizing some of the things that really make us unique. So we've got a carousel up on the on the top floor that's going to stay but new technology to make it feel like you're floating in the stars really celebrating play and our partnerships with some of the branded IPs and having a permanent Barbie house, uh, dream house that you can play with and walk in actually on site. So you don't have to wait for a traveling exhibit, working with Mattel and, and Batman and really celebrate toys in childhood. And we're calling it Carousel Land of Imagination. So we also have a vision to uh, revitalize our Reuben Wells and again, add projection mapping. So you feel like you're at the train station and you're seeing the train leave. So there's so much more that we can do now that you've, we've done Dinosphere, now that we've added Power of Children and we've added a lot of um, theatrical technology, it's shoring up some of those spaces. So that's one thing um, is going back into those beloved experiences and making them even more spectacular. We also have plans for a fund for innovation. So we want to quicker about adding new ways to be inclusive and accessible. We want to be able to address DEAI concerns and having that those funds accessible when we need them is going to be really important. We rebuilt the Dynasphere experience. We added ASL video. So we had sign interpreters that are part of the Sound of Light show. 
if we had a bucket of money where we could do that when we need to, that would be really exciting. And we've also talked a lot about master campus planning and what what we can do to better work with our six surrounding neighborhoods and community organizations to green pathways to make sure that we've got enough parking in a way that's not disruptive. So some bigger things like that, but the, the kind of the through line through all of it is community. And we're talking about elevating voices, elevating excitement, elevating inclusion, and elevating futures, and really being purposeful to kind of design backwards from the impact that we intend to have. Lots going on uh, at the Children's Museum of Indianapolis. It has been for so many, many decades such a, a great part of Indianapolis. And Jennifer Pace Robinson is CEO. I know uh, looking ahead to that next 100 years, can't wait to hear some, some of the more of your plans and the exciting new things that are going to be happy to keep the Children's Museum on the maps. Thanks so much for all you do. And thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. All right. And thank you for joining us on the Business and Beyond podcast presented by PNC. It is a weekly conversation with achievers in business, sports, entertainment, and beyond. And you can download it and also get uh, Indiana Business News 24-7. All you have to do is go to InsideIndianaBusiness.com. I'm Gary Dick. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.